guy reached out, took my hand, looked up at me with the biggest smile and said, I am so lucky. I have two dads. When one is in jail, the other one is home free. I was impacted by this little guy's words and the broken heritage that he so boldly embraced and accepted. I began, excuse me, I began to ponder my own heritage and I realized I too have two fathers. I am so lucky. You see, I have my heavenly father who watches over me day and night and has never left me. I have my earthly father that managed and modeled for me that Christian walk with my heavenly father. He taught me of God's faithfulness and the ongoing sustaining presence, that gift I cherish forever. Perhaps it's only right to take you to the beginning of where I believe the root of my heritage and the cemented was cemented in solid faith. My dad wrote not so many years ago, I, like many other children, asked Jesus to come into my heart. The living reality of that decision broke over my soul as I fell to my knees and prayed in my own bedroom at the age of 15. From that Easter Sunday night, 1931, until this present moment, I have earnestly desired God's will. However, for the next three years, I wrestled with an inner enemy I had never recognized before. Something, sometimes my pilgrimage was interrupted by the intrusion of my own selfish will. The problem was my attitude. I was dissatisfied with my spiritual life. Even as I stumbled through this three-year period, my soul continued to cry out to God for his complete will. In 1934, that cry and hunger was acted upon through the work of the Blessed Holy Spirit. I was in the cellar. That would be a basement for those of you not from Pennsylvania. I was in the cellar of my father's home getting coal for the stove. I don't recall if I was whistling, singing, praying, meditating, but I distinctly recall that my heart bore witness to the fact that some sort of a sacred and spiritual, spiritual transaction was taking place within my soul. It enveloped me as gently as the early morning dew and as sweetly as the refreshing spring breeze. At that time, I simply concluded I had witnessed a double conversion. Eventually, circumstances led me to the Church of the Nazarene, where I discovered their interpretation of God's word explained that which I had already experienced. I had not received a second conversion, but I had received a second blessing. I had invited the Holy Spirit to fill that struggling void and take control of my attitude and my life. I had completely surrendered it all to God. When our son graduated with his first law degree, the commencement speaker was Mayor Giuliani, who happened to be the mayor of New York at the time of the 9-11 crisis which for the young ones is when the Twin Towers came down. Mayor Giuliani shared that the reason he was so prepared to manage that crisis was because he was able to immediately draw on the resources of his preparedness. Without even thinking, he knew what to do. He knew he had to get the fire units, the ambulance, the police. He had to set up a Red Cross to have a place for the priest. He had to set up a tri triage center a communication center, and even a makeshift morgue. Said Mayor Giuliani, for him it was no heroic move on that September day in 2001. 
It was a natural response to a crisis. He had the preparedness and he put it into action. And as I reflect on the words of Mayo Giuliani, I cannot help but compare and parallel his preparedness to our own Christian heritage and how we are passing on to our children our heritage and on to our family and our nieces and nephews and our grandchildren that preparedness of the spiritual values and our walk with the Lord. I was invited to share with you today my story and when I know many of you have heard our story of our children's cancer and that's just a window of the ongoing faithfulness of God's greater story of faithfulness in our lives and for generate through the generations. You see that man called my father who experienced the peace of the Holy Spirit in the basement of his home was called to preach. He wanted to go. He felt God's call in 1936 and after he heard about Eastern Nazarene College he decided that was a place. In preparation for the ministry he went out and bought a pair of shoes and hid them under his bed. His mom found the shoes and said, Paul, what's with this? He said, oh, mom, I'm going to be a preacher. She said, son, we don't have the money to send you to college. He said, mom, God's going to take care of me. Don't you worry. Dad came on through to Eastern Nazarene College. He earned his way through college working as a butler up on Hospital Hill. He tells how the lady he worked for would walk in, put a chicken on the table and say, Paul, we'll eat it tonight. He didn't even know what you do with a chicken. He had to figure it out. He tells how he had a basic recipe on the wall, how to cook carrots, wash them, peel them, cut them, put them in water, turn on the stove or light the stove with wood, whatever you did. Through all this time, Dad was a full-time student majoring in religion and philosophy at Eastern Nazarene College. He was pastoring the Wareham, Massachusetts Church of the Nazarene and transportation back and forth every weekend was by hiking, hitchhiking. It was during this time that my dad met my mother, a nurse at Quincy Medical. She was also taking classes at ENC. Since about the age of eight, she had had a call from the mission field to go to Africa as a missionary. And after two years of dating, mom and dad felt they could not get married as much as they loved each other. Dad was called to preach. Mom was called to Africa. With a broken heart, they surrendered the relationship, but they continued to lean upon the Lord for guidance. And after two years of prayerful soul searching, they fully trusted in God. They believed it was okay for them to go ahead and get married. Mom never surrendered her call to the field. Dad and Mom began pastoring in the um, Providence Church of the Nazarene. They waited upon the Lord. Dad would go down in the basement day after day, week after week, and he would pray and say, Lord, if it be your will, lay the burden on some young person. Call them to Africa. Call them to the field. Dad says during that time, Mom never again brought up her call. But Dad, one day when he was praying so earnestly, felt that nudging, and he said, Look, God, if this is really your spirit talking to me, let Mom, let May bring up the call to Africa. That very same night when Dad was upstairs at supper, Mom said, Paul, have you ever given Africa another thought? Good old dad was so shocked that God answered his prayer so abruptly, he clammed up and didn't talk to mom for a whole 24 hours about it. He was so nervous. Mom and dad went to Africa in 1945, served the Church of the Nazarene for 34 years in Africa. Dad's assignment, first and foremost, was church growth work. And then, of course, the general missionary work, a need made known, requires action. 
One of the first to surrender their hearts to the Lord under Dad's ministry was an old witch doctor. So transformed was this man through from the conversion of witchcraft to holiness that he went on to become an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. In 1975, John and I went to Africa as missionaries. In 1980, John was assigned to do the, the evangelistic school program among our 38 Nazarene schools in Africa. John would go into the school for a solid week. He would train spiritually qualified teachers and staff that felt that they could mentor and help young people and teenagers and school children once they accept the Lord as their savior. The next week, the evangelist would go in and preach to these children. And then when she left, those that John had trained would go ahead and mentor these young people while John and the evangelist were on at another school. That evangelist was the daughter of that witch doctor who went on to become an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene and serve on the general board of our church. Do you see God's faithfulness in what I am telling you? When, we got, when Mom and Dad went to Africa, and Mom was assigned to run the local clinic, there was a day when a man came in, bad toothache, Mom called Dad. Paul, could you come pull this man's tooth? Yeah, he's a preacher. He can do anything. He went and yanked the tooth out, but he dislocated the jaw. Some time ago, I said, Dad, I'm going to share your story about dislocating the jaw. He chuckled over the phone. He said, honey, girl, I also pulled the wrong tooth. <laughs> I don't know if the guy ever went back for more help. Um, Dad was also an acting undertaker. There were times when the family would stand around the grave and the grave site was not, the, the burial spot was not big enough and Dad along with the family would get down in that dirt and shovel the grave out, making it long enough to hold a loved one. Dad tried his hand as a bugle. Again, as a missionary, you do anything you can to help make the mission to, to minister to the people. Dad had a bugle. He would go in church. He would play that thing. And one day a lady walked in and heard that thing and ran out holding her ears, yelling, my God, my God. She was terrified. Dad's colleague had the courage to tell Dad he needs to bury that bugle to the glory of God. He never played it again in church. In the, in the early 1940s, Dad and John Seaman felt the call to start an English-speaking work in the Nazarene Church in Swaziland. Soon they developed, they started initially meeting in a courthouse. They soon outgrew that and they moved over to a school where they worshiped for many years. However, I don't know when that church was actually organized as a Nazarene church, as, as an official church, but I do know the name of that church was the Living Waters Church of the Nazarene. In 1977, our firstborn, John Jr., better known as JJ, was diagnosed with cancer. It was that very body of people at the Living Waters Church of the Nazarene that Dad had helped minister to, that John and I had gone to minister to, that turned around and ministered to us as we walked the journey of cancer with our children. And as God and his divine leading would allow, in... Eight, 1982, Pasadena First Church from California went out and built a church building for the Living Waters Church of the Nazarene in which the sanctuary is dedicated to our little boy and the Sunday school rooms are dedicated to another missionary child that died from cancer. Another assignment of Dad's was to work among the gold mines and the people that preach in the gold mines. In South Africa, Dad was, Mom and Dad were working during the years of segregation and apartheid 
There were many various races and many various people, but you could only go into a certain area with permits. And Dad, knowing this, still would invite the African men into his home, the African pastors. I remember as a young kid, the curtains drawn, the lights off, the darkness, as Dad would usher these people into his office and sit in fellowship with them and, and give them food and spiritually, physically talk with them, mentor with them. His mission, his goal, his message was way more important than the risk of being in prison. Dad had a permit to go into the non-white communities. He would go in and stand on the street corner and play his accordion. And when he had a small enough group, he would start preaching. It's called church planting, guys, and he would and woman. And he would stand on the street corner and start preaching. He said week after week, maybe there would be one or two. But finally one day, there was an old drunk guy that came up by the name of Mr. Tim. Dad said when he went home that night, Mom said, honey, how'd the service go? He probably said something like, oh, I don't know, some drunk came and gave his heart to the Lord, but I don't think he was sober enough to know what was happening. For the next three weeks, Mr. Tim faithfully was there at those services, meeting with Dad, and then Mr. Tim disappeared. Dad held a burden for Mr. Tim, and he started looking for him. He started asking around, and finally he found someone that would lead him to Mr. Tim's home. When Dad got to Mr. Tim's home, he found him laying on a bed, clutching a Bible, tears pouring down his face, and a young man standing there. When Mr. Tim saw Dad, he started sobbing. He said, Preacher, I have been trying to tell my nephew how to find the Lord, but I don't know how to explain the plan of salvation. And then and there, Dad prayed with that nephew and led him to the Lord. So excited was that nephew, he said to Dad, Can you go with me over to my home? I want to also tell my family and have my wife find and accept Christ. Dad said, sure. He didn't have a car. Together, they started walking through the community. It is dark. It is late. Dad can be arrested for being in the wrong area at the wrong time. He walked with this family. He finally got to the home of Mr. Tim's nephew. He went inside and, and met with the wife. And as they ministered and prayed together, and that family surrendered and gave their lives to Christ, Dad observed casually, off in the corner, a little girl just standing there, quietly taking it in, not making a move. Years later, John and I, got to figure out where I am now. Years later, John and I, missionaries in Africa, had the pleasure of working with Connie McKenzie. And as we got to know Connie McKenzie, a commissioned missionary with the church in the Nazarene, we found she was that little girl standing in the corner, Mr. Tim's granddaughter. Do you see the faithfulness of God's mercy and love through the generation? In 2016, next year, Dad will be 100 years old. He continues to share the word of God. Last summer, he was still preaching in church. And the interesting thing is when Dad got to the United States after they retired, he went to the doctor for a medical, and the doctor said, you can't drive. If I'd seen you before you went to college, I would have said, don't go, for Dad was legally blind. Didn't interfere with his ministry.
Dad was a family man, important. He was a family man. Every year we went on vacation. He was a family man. We frequently played Monopoly and had the rule, the loser makes fudge, and every week he made fudge while Mom was slipping the money under the table and never went bankrupt. I don't understand it, but they were great parents. Three weeks after I turned 18, my parents said goodbye to me, leaving me, leaving me in the United States as they went back to Africa for a five to seven year term of missionary service. And I recall in that airport as mom stood there, we were sobbing and she held me tight and embraced me and said, Sandra, whatever you do, stay true to God. I felt in that moment, in that hour, she knew yesterday was gone. And we had that moment then and there. They had given me the equipment. They had given me the tools. They had given me the preparedness to walk forward and to walk with our Lord. And in that comfort, we said goodbye. February 2007, I'm fast forwarding. Neil, our third born, was diagnosed with cancer for the third time. John and I had been speaking, at a, had a speaking engagement in New Bedford that day. So by the time we got to the hospital, Neil had already been told the ulcer for which they were testing him was in fact a very serious form of cancer carcinoma, his stomach was full of it. He ended up losing a third of his stomach. He ended up losing the tip of the esophagus. He ended up being very, very ill. Before we could even get to Neil and do that mom and dad thing, Neil had instinctively kicked in to the survival mode of one that has the spiritual tools on how to walk forward in a crisis. He said to the staff there, he said, my aunt Esther, sitting back there, who's not a blood relative, but he knew her better than any family. He said, my Aunt Esther is a, is a chaplain in this, in this hospital. Do you think you could call her? I don't know where Esther was. I don't know how God planned it. But before we got to our son, the family of God had already gone into that hospital room. That family of God had already met with Neil, prayed with Neil, started mentoring him. They was there to support us when we arrived. We were never promised an easy journey as we go through this faithful journey of God's faithfulness. We were promised strength to live it and that God would carry us through the pain. Somehow Neil instinctively knew that. He knew to draw on the tools that he had had. He turned to God and he knew God would get him through. 2007, Neil's cancer came back again and they had told us if it comes back again, he would not see 2008. But it came back. And I remember that heavy heart as we sat around our kitchen table knowing that Neil was not to face the new year. It was December. And we sat there and the heaviness was almost tangible. John and I sat there with our now adult son. He looked at us and he said, Mom and Dad, he said, I have no regrets. I've had a great life. I wish I could have experienced my career but I've had a great life and God is good. I have no regrets. By the way, he's now in Africa experiencing his career 100% cancer-free. Neil used to tell those doctors at Dana-Farber, God and I have a whole lot more opt optimism than you guys do. I'm going to make this, and he did. I don't know 
what heritage you are giving your children. I don't know what kind of a heritage you receive, but I do know that you have today to take and give to your children and your family and your loved ones and every person you come in contact. You have that moment where you can give to them the tools, the plan of salvation, the, the confidence in God, the love, the prayer, the hope, the faith, the tools that it takes for this life's journey. I am so grateful. I have two fathers. I am so grateful that I was given the heritage that has sustained me, not through just the tough times, but also the good times. But for the family of God, I challenge you, reach out and embrace this of God's faithfulness.